0: Hello. I'm Aaron Lohr.
1: And I'm Caitlin Underchuck.
0: And this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Thank you for downloading this podcast, a free service of the Endocrine Society. In this, our very first episode, we focus on male reproductive health. We will talk with Stephanie Page, a professor of medicine at the University of Washington, about research on what she calls a prototype male pill. Dr. Page presented this research at the Endocrine Society's annual meeting in March 2018, and we spoke with her there. Also, we will introduce some regular features on our podcast, including the hormone of the day and our trivia question. Stay tuned.
1: First our hormone of the day. In today's episode, we talk about research focusing on male reproduction, learning about an experimental male contraceptive called dimethandrolone undecanoate or DMAU. Naturally then, our very first hormone of the day is testosterone. So what exactly is testosterone? Testosterone is the main sex hormone in males. It plays a key role in the development of male reproductive tissue, including the testes and prostate, and is responsible for secondary sex characteristics, such as deepening of the voice, growth of facial, pubic, and body hair, and growing taller and building stronger muscles and bones. Testosterone also plays a role in women. It contributes to sex drive, bone density, and strength. Let's talk about how testosterone works. Free testosterone is transported through the blood into the cytoplasm of target cells in different tissues. It can directly activate the androgen receptor by binding, or it can be further reduced to 5-alpha-dihydrotestosterone, or DHT. DHT binds even more strongly to androgen receptors than free testosterone. After the receptor is bound, it can travel to the nucleus of target cells, and there bind to nuclear hormone response elements to influence transcriptional changes to target genes, thus exerting various testosterone-driven effects. Our trivia question also has to do with male contraception. When was the first hormonal male contraceptive tested in men? We will have the answer for you at the end of the episode.
0: And now our interview with Stephanie Page, a professor of medicine at the University of Washington in the Division of Metabolism, Endocrinology, and Nutrition. She is also a section head at Harborview Medical Center. Dr. Page and her colleagues presented their findings on dimethandrolone undecanoate at Endo 2018 in March. We talked to her there. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So your endo presentation is entitled Pharmacokinetic and Pharmacodynamic Effects of 28 Days of Oral Dimethendrolone Undecanoate in Healthy Men, a Prototype Male Pill. Oh boy, I know this is already <laughs> generating a lot of buzz, and a lot of people are very excited to hear more about this. So before we get into your findings, can you just tell us a little bit about where we are with male contraception and some of the challenges that researchers have been running into?
2: So internationally, people have been working on developing a male hormonal contraceptive for over 40 years. And the work that we are presenting here at Endocrine Society is really a culmination of a lot of those efforts. So people first demonstrated in works sponsored by the WHO that giving men testosterone, similar to giving women estrogen, as you would in a female contraceptive, blocks their sperm production. The problem is is that that wasn't particularly effective in about 35 to 40% of men. So further work went on to show that adding a progestin, so testosterone plus a progestin, was sufficient to provide enough suppression of sperm for men to be contraceptive. So that actually is work that's been going on for quite some time using different formulations of both the testosterone and the progestin. For example, a combination of an implant and an injection a combination of two different types of injections, and most recently using transdermal preparations. So that science is really what supports the findings that we were able to present today. It's the underpinnings of all that work tells us, for example, that suppressing hormones in the way we were able to do in this particular study is very likely to be effective in our next phase of development and really translate into suppression of sperm production.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about this dimethandrolone undecanate and how you've used this to be part of the male contraception? You bet. So
2: dimethandrolone undecanoate is a novel steroid that is built on the backbone of 19-nortestosterone. So it's a derivative of testosterone with four different chemical modifications that have used ours and really other people's work to try and mitigate the side effects of delivering testosterone orally. So dimethandrolone undecanoate has a modification that we specifically know from the development of oral testosterone, mitigates the effects on the liver, which have been really problematic in delivering oral androgens. Secondly, it has a long-chain fatty acid that's been added, the undecanoate piece, that we know from development, again, of t- oral testosterone, increases the absorption of the dimethandrolone as well as the half-life in the body, meaning the drug is there for longer to have its effects.
0: Your study found that dimethandrolone on decanoate, or DMAU, was basically effective, and it seemed to be safe, but let's explain how we got there. Uh, what methodology did your team employ?
2: So I want to be very clear that this study was done as a collaborative effort between ourselves at the University of Washington and our colleagues led by Christina Wang at Harbor UCLA. We first did a study that's actually already been published where we did a first in human study and individuals were admitted to the hospital and given single doses of dimethandrolone in escalating doses. So they came in, they got 100 milligrams. measured everything, made sure they were safe, and then we had men come and get 200 milligrams and so forth. So that's, that was the first phase one study. This study was designed, when we say safe and effective, what we're saying is, is that in a small cohort of men, we did not see any acute safety concerns. So we monitored the individuals in the study carefully. These were healthy men with normal reproductive function. We monitored their liver function tests, their kidney function, their cholesterol, their vital signs, their weight, and so forth throughout the study. We can't comment on safety over long-term use. So this was really a study designed to look at acute safety to give us the, hopefully, and in this case, yes, the green light to go forward with longer-term studies. So that was the primary issue. The second thing we were, of course, looking at was the drug levels in the body, which we also um, measured. And then we also looked at what's called the pharmacodynamics, so the effects on the hormones, gonadotropins, LH, and FSH, and testosterone. And frankly, the study was primarily designed to demonstrate the safety, but we were really um, pleased that the hormone effects were as dramatic as they were, which really is encouraging for this next phase of development.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the next phase of development, and what is the next phase in your research going to be?
2: Sure. So this was a 1-month study and also a dose finding study. So we we use these results to pick the doses to use in a longer term study. So we've shown that the hormone effects are very marked and we know from all the other work that's been done that suppression of LH and FSH and testosterone to these levels should suppress sperm production, but we certainly need to show that. So the next study is a three-month study, which will be starting in April of 2018. We've picked a few doses. It's a placebo-controlled study as well. It will be three months in duration with the primary endpoints. so the most important thing that we're focused on being safety and sperm suppression.
0: Looking down the road, if one day you know this becomes a product that's out there on the market that somebody could use, do we have any information about whether something this new and novel would even be well received? Would men want to use this? Would women trust them to use this? Sure.
2: So that's a really important question. Of course, we don't know until we get there. But I think there's a few things that are really important to point out. First of all, men already do share in the burden of contraception. They do about 17% of the contraceptive work, quote, in the United States between using condoms and vasectomy. Secondly, there's been large surveys that suggest that men, when when men are asked about theoretical contraceptives, pills, long-acting injections, men are very, very interested. 60 to 80% of men say they would use something if it were available. The participants in our studies and, and other studies that have been done are very interested in continuing the methods that they're testing. So there's a lot of positive data there. Um, I'm asked this a lot and I think that we underestimate men's interest in contraception because women have traditionally been the active contraceptors in our society. Men are very interested in sharing the burden of contraception with their partners. There's a lot of single men that are actually interested in controlling their own fertility. There's people in couples that want to space their children. There's many women who can't use the currently available contraceptives. And I think the final point is Men don't have a lot of options. Vasectomies are not reversible, and condoms have a very important place in sexual health, but they aren't the best contraceptives out there. They have high failure rates, and they're difficult to use. So I think that when men have a lot more choices available, when they have the menu of contraceptives available that women do, we can only anticipate that their interest and acceptance of using contraceptives will be heightened.
0: So this is a big step, I think, forward. Uh, how many more steps do you think there are? Are we far away? Are we are we near to seeing something that people could have access to?
2: So there's lots of work to do. So I don't want to underestimate that we have a lot of work to do. We want we need to demonstrate sperm suppression, and then we really do need much bigger and longer studies to look at safety and do appropriate assessments. And what we really need to do that is not only for us to be working on this, but to get investment from either the pharmaceutical industry in the long run or more public partners. So having opportunities like this to talk about our work is great because part of the thing that will spurn that, I think, is public engagement and public demand for these sorts of things. But the answer to your question is I'm hopeful that with this work and the work that's led up to this, that getting a product to the market in the next five to 10 years is an attainable goal. And that's really what we're shooting for. I can't really see a scenario where we could get this moving any faster than that, but I actually think that that's an attainable goal.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your research with us and our listeners today. We we loved having you on and we wish you the absolute best. Thank you. Thank you for your interest.
1: Our trivia question at the beginning of the episode was, When was the first hormonal male contraceptive tested in men? In answer to our trivia, it was in 1957 that Dr. Gregory Pincus, who was also a co-inventor of the female contraceptive pill, first tested hormonal contraception in men.
0: And that's all for now. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. To learn more about research on male reproductive health and contraception, visit our society website at www.endocrine.org podcast. There, click on the link to this episode, and you will see links to journal articles and other resources. Now that you've listened to us, we'd like to hear from you. What topics would you like to hear about on the podcast? Let us know at podcast at You can subscribe to Endocrine News Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.